Hello, this is Jonathan Van Maren of the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, filling in today for Stephanie Gray. Thank you, each and every one of you, for being with us. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to go over one of the concepts that the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform has been developing to reach out to people on the streets, and then we're going to listen to a short interview describing the life of someone that I find very inspirational, and I'm sure all of you will agree. Now, the concept I want to tell you a little bit about today is called Be Inspired, because as most of you listening to this program will know, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform is an educational pro-life group that spends its time confronting the culture, talking to people as they go about their everyday lives, as they leave their high schools, their places of work, and their homes. And we talk to them about abortion, and we talk to them about how abortion is a human rights violation, and how abortion needs to be opposed by each and every one of us who values human life and believes in human rights. Now, what with that discussion often ends up circling around are difficult circumstances. Any of you who have ever discussed abortion with somebody before will know that immediately they begin to talk about the difficult circumstances, the, the small minority of circumstances in which rape or incest or, or any number of other extremely difficult circumstances are taking place. Now, there are different apologetic arguments that you can use in those circumstances, but every once in a while you'll find somebody who, no matter which argument you present, no matter how scientifically you prove your case, no matter how philosophically consistent your case for the human rights of the preborn are, that, those, that that person will simply not be able to get over that circumstance. They simply won't be able to realize that human life isn't valued based on how you came into being, but on the fact that you are indeed a human being. Sometimes they'll be so focused on those circumstances that they won't be able to intellectually understand what you're saying. Now, in that circumstances, we have a, a tactic that we call be inspired, the be inspired concept. And that concept consists of asking the person we're talking to one very simple question. Who inspires you? Now, Everybody has somebody that inspires them, at least I really hope they do. And everybody that we've asked so far, at least everybody that I've asked so far, has always come back with somebody who inspired them. Now, every single time I asked that question, the answer I got was different, with the exception of one answer, and that was my mother. Many people find their mothers to be very inspirational people. But generally speaking, the names are all different, but the reasons that those persons are inspiring are the same. When I ask people why they find someone inspiring, it's always because that person faced some sort of obstacle or suffering. Somebody met great trials, hardships, challenges, and met those trials, hardships, and challenges, faced those obstacles, faced that suffering, and refused to give up. They overcame their obstacles. They worked at it. They worked hard to carry on in spite of what had happened to them. Now, when push comes to shove, most people, while advocating the easy way out, while advocating band-aid sort of fix-it solutions like abortion, don't actually believe that that's an honorable decision to make, an honorable choice to make, when you actually start to ask them what they actually find to be honorable, what they find to be inspirational. What you'll discover is that they think that those who face difficult circumstances and back down those who face evil and turn away, those who look at injustice and refuse to do anything, that those, those, things, those, those things really aren't at all inspirational, that those things really aren't to be desired, those aren't traits that are deserving of emulation. They start to realize as you talk to them that the very 
easy fix-it band-aid solution that they're proposing is something that they wouldn't respect whatsoever in the characters that they hold to be inspirational. Now, somebody that I've always found to be inspirational is somebody that's going to be very familiar to most of you, and that's a man named Oscar Schindler. Now, most of you have heard of Oscar Schindler because of the film uh, based on what he did for... 1,200 Jews during the Second World War, but there's also an amazing book called Schindler's List that I would urge each and every one of you to go out and purchase because the film really only tells a tiny part of the story. And I had the extreme privilege several years ago uh, in Vancouver when I was working freelance for a newspaper called the Jewish Independent to interview a man who was at that time the youngest surviving member of Schindler's List, a man named Leon Lason. Now, Leon Lason, who was nicknamed by Oscar Schindler, Little Lason, was on Schindler's List and was saved because he was on Schindler's List. He was number 69128 on Schindler's List. Now, just to give you a bit of background, Leon Lason was born on September 15, 1929, in a peaceful town about 150 miles northeast of Warsaw. Now, as most of us know, being born in Poland at this time was actually for many, many Jews, a death sentence because the Jews of Poland were almost completely exterminated during the Second World War. And indeed, the Lason's family's feelings of security started to collapse in the 1930s, especially 1939 when Germany invaded Poland and the brutality of the Nazis accelerated with murder, violence, and terror. Shortly thereafter, Leon Lason's family was herded into Krakow's Jewish ghetto. Now, I've actually been to Krakow and been to the place where the Jewish ghetto used to stand. It's still a terrible, broken down area of town. They still have not completely recovered from the carnage and destruction inflicted on them so many years ago. And in 1941, Herschel, Leon Lason's oldest brother, decided to flee Krakow, to risk everything and flee Krakow, but he was killed by the Nazis in a massacre in Narawaka shortly, shortly after that. However, two of his other brothers, Moshe and David, were soon working for Oskar Schindler in his enamel goods factory. A German businessman named Oskar Schindler had moved into town, opened up a factory, and was trying to get as many Jews as he possibly could working in his factory. And in Schindler's factory, no killing was allowed, no beating was allowed, and he treated his workers very well. His factory was considered a place where Jews can be safe. When Oskar Schindler realized the extent of what was happening to the Jews, when he realized that what was happening was not just a persecution, not just an imprisonment, not just stealing their goods, but a full-out, full-fledged extermination, Schindler decided to try save as many Jews as he possibly could, using all of his money to bribe German officials to bring Jews to his factory so that he could keep them there safe. Leon Lason was the youngest Jew on Schindler's List. He was a 13-year-old scrawny kid chosen to work for Oscar Schindler mainly because other members of his family were already working there. Oscar Schindler developed a real fondness for Leon, nicknaming him Little Lason and always showing him a lot of kindnesses. Lason actually said in a, in a presentation I attended in Vancouver, quote, Occasionally, when he was by himself, he would come and talk to me. He ordered that I would get extra rations of food, probably because I was so skinny. When Leon Lason's vision began to blur from all the factory work he was doing, he was excused from the night shift. 
And Schindler's most important act, of course, was putting Leon Lason on the final list, the final list of Jews who were to survive the Holocaust in Schindler's factory. His two older brothers did not survive the war, but he, his parents, his brother, and his sister were saved and did survive the war because they were on Schindler's list. Now, I had the opportunity to interview Leon Lason who incidentally and sadly passed away earlier this year. But I had the opportunity to interview him before he passed away, and I'd just like to share an excerpt of that interview with you. Uh, you're coming to Vancouver in a couple of weeks. That's right. I was wondering, what is the message you plan to bring to Vancouver? The message is that um, the last request that people made, uh, those who were about to die, asked that those who survived, if they survived, to be sure to tell the world what had happened. So the message is there was, amidst all the insanity, insanity, there was one person, one human being that did the right thing at great risk to his own life. And uh, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. If, that, if I were to distill it into just that one message. In a couple of sentences, um, uh, how, how would you have described your experience? I know that's almost impossible to ask, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in my family, five people, five of us in the immediate family survived the war, and no one else did. Everyone else was murdered, and we survived the war because we were, the five of us were on Schindler's list. What is uh, your most vivid memory of Oscar Schindler? Oh, <laughs> well, he was a, uh, a different kind of human being. You know, you, you have to remember that I experienced the, the other kind for the first uh, two and a half years of, my, of the war. And so when I met Oscar Schindler, it was just, uh, just like meeting a different kind of human being. Uh, before that, uh, I met these people who simply accepted the Nazi ideology and, and treated us as non-human. And I spent two and a half years uh, in that situation. And then, uh, and then I met Oscar Schindler, who seemed like a different person altogether. You know, you could mm -hmm. tell. You could tell by the way he spoke to us. You could tell the way he he looked at us, and uh, and how he treated us. And you know they. As everyone knows by this time, that he saved 1,200 uh, human beings during that part, during that war, and that was a great accomplishment. And he did that to his, to the great risk to his own life, his own fortune. It, it's not like uh, nowadays it's just being a good CEO or anything. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. it was a whole different thing to treat us as uh, human beings and uh, do what he could to supply us possible. You know, sometimes with a little extra food and things like that. It was a, um, well, you know, you, can, you can't describe him any other way except to, that he was a genuine hero. You actually, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, met him several times? Oh, many times, many times. Once I got to, uh, to his company, once I started working there, I was transferred to his company then. I met him almost uh, nightly. You know, he had a habit of uh, 
entertaining a lot in his office, and uh, after the uh, guest left, he would come down uh, to the factory floor and, and visit, just uh, slowly walk through and talk, stop and talk to people and just make human contact. If I recall correctly from reading some of, of your other interviews and, and some material, he actually um, went to uh, Auschwitz to retrieve some of... Um, of, of his close Yeah, friends. when when the women were not uh, not all the women were going to be sent to him because in Auschwitz, you know, they people who were received in Auschwitz went through a selection, and there was one person who decided whether who was, should live and who should die. And I and actually in that uh, in that situation, my my mother was sent to the left to, to the die. She was already in a barracks awaiting the gas chamber when Schindler found out that not all the women are being sent to his factory, new new location. Um, in real life, uh, he did not go to Auschwitz. He, he sent someone and, and spent a lot of money to, to bribe people and uh, persuaded them to uh, allow all the women on his list to be sent to his factory. At that point, my mother was taken out of the barracks where she was awaiting the gas chamber and then ended up in Schindler's with the Schindler women. Um, you you know that from probably from some of my um, other stories or my other presentations then, huh? I read a little bit about of it. Somebody, you had mentioned something in an answer to a question, but not, not in any detail, so that's why I was curious. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the actual film? Oh, well, for, for the most part, it's very accurate. You know, the, the events that occurred that were accurate, uh, except that it's still a movie, you know, it's just, it's not real life. But as far as the events are concerned, they were depicted accurately. The ghetto and the the camp, you know, and you can't even, you can't show all the the horrible atrocities that have been, that were committed on a daily basis, you know, with people being murdered, people being beaten, people, you know, it's just... You can't show that in a movie. You can only show uh, samples, you know. You feel that the story of, of Oscar Schindler is still very relevant uh, to today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's relevant on so many different levels. Um, you know, I speak to high school students and middle school students, and, uh, you know, to do the right thing does not have to constitute a Schindler. You know, you can just, you could do the right thing by... Uh, inviting uh, a new students to come and sit with you at your table with the rest of your friends, you know, it's just one of those little things. It, it doesn't take much. It's a matter of being kind. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk to high school students, and you know, those are their the main, you know, that their their social uh, uh, behavior is just all at, in a school, you know, and it. it depends on how they act, and it's important to, that they know that it makes a difference uh, on how you act and what you do. As somebody who, who was personally involved, what reply do you have um, to those who say that although Oscar Schindler did very good things, he was still a war profiteer, etc., etc.? Uh, I, I dismiss that, uh, you know, that that is such a... Uh, yeah, sure. You can you can always find something. You can you still you know he, he was a he saved twelve hundred people, but he was a womanizer. 
he saved 1,200 people, but he was he drank a lot. It was just irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant to what what he accomplished. You know, you don't have to be a, a perfect human being to be a hero. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just have to do the right thing at the right time, and uh, sometimes it's a, it's a heroic thing to do. You know, especially at those days when. Uh, his, his own life was uh, in jeopardy to, for doing that. So, you know, you could, always, you could always find something like, well, he was a drunkard, or he drank too much, or he, he had too many women. So what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are so many of them that had so many women but didn't do anything. He just kept killing people. Absolutely. It's the same thing he did, except that on the side uh, they had a little thing that where they were murdering people on a daily basis. So, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. What spurred you to speak out after uh, so many years? Well, you know, they actually what happened was that uh, the the movie came out. When the movie Schindler's List came out, uh, there were there was a lot of interest generated in 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 that, those events especially because there was a Schindler and so on. And so uh, I was persuaded to, to tell my, my experiences because I was on Schindler's list, and little by little I continued speaking. But it was, it, it was basically it was time, you know. It was, it's been 40 years since I've been in this country, and I didn't speak about my experiences uh, to anyone except my immediate family, you know. And even then I did, wouldn't tell everything so uh, it was it was uh, it was getting close to time to do it if if we're going to uh, uh, you know honor the request of those people who died that if we survive to tell tell the world then um, yeah, that's, it was time for me to start how do you feel um when, when you hear the words never again, especially uh, I've been to Yad Vashem and, and seen what has happened there, and then and then you look at what goes uh, goes on around the world, uh, do you feel that... Do you feel the, that uh, that's why we need all the more, and we need to uh, tell about uh, what might what might what might happen, or you know what what had occurred in those, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know, people should. You know, get a lesson. You know, have a lesson from this on how to behave and how to act with each other. But uh, apparently, the lesson has not been learned yet. So we'll just keep trying. Now, as I mentioned, Leon Layson passed away earlier this year. But there's just so much that he had to say that can apply as a lesson to each and every one of us. Because he's right. We do say never again. But yet it happens again and again and again. And instead of, instead of perhaps discriminating based on religion, which does still happen, we think of the Coptic Christians in Egypt, we think of the Christians in Sudan, but if we don't discriminate based on religion, we, we discriminate based on ethnicity or race or age or any number of other completely arbitrary characteristics that we use to deny people their fundamental human rights. We kill people because they're inconvenient. We kill them because they're different than us. We kill them for any number of excuses that we come up with that really make no sense whatsoever at the end of the day. And every time this happens, there are people who step forward and refuse to look away. They refuse to back down in the face of evil. They refuse to simply look at injustice and let it happen. 
Because what we have to remember is that great evil, times of great evil, great injustices, bring the opportunity for a righteous response. We don't have to stand back and ignore what happens. We don't have to just acknowledge the existence of a great injustice or ignore a great injustice. We can actually step up and we can do something no matter how small it is. Not everybody can be a hero like Oscar Schindler could, but everybody can do something. Everybody can adopt the same attitude he did, which is that all human beings are valuable no matter what. And because all human beings are valuable, that demands a response from me that is consistent with the recognition that all humans are valuable. When we look at what we should do and we think about what we should do, we should ask ourselves that question. Who inspires us? Why do they inspire us? What do they do that makes us look up to them? When we look at that, those people, we will inevitably realize that they didn't take the easy way out. They didn't see an injustice happening and just ignore it. The pro-life message is about calling our culture to do hard things. We need to simply show people they already embrace that philosophy when they identify those that inspire them. We need to connect the dots for people. We need to show the public that self-sacrificing, discipline, strong willpower of people they admire are characteristics they should employ in their own lives when it comes to tough situations like fighting injustice or like an unplanned pregnancy. The truth of the matter is that life is filled with suffering and challenges in some form or another. Whether it's physical or psychological or relational, everyone at some point faces struggles. Even those who appear to have it all together often suffer silently, hidden behind closed doors at home. Everybody has their burdens to bear. Everybody has their crosses to bear. Now, certainly there's no doubt that some people are burdened far more than others, but the question remains, if we live with imperfect people, we are going to suffer as the result of imperfect choices. So the question that we're faced with is a very simple one. What are we going to do about it? That's the question that Mother Teresa had to ask herself about the poverty she saw on the streets. That's the question that a cancer patient has to ask. That's the question that immigrant parents, like my grandparents, had to ask. What separates those who inspire us from those who do not is how they answer that question. How did Oscar Schindler ask that question, what are you going to do about it? He spent every dollar he had to save Leon Lason, members of Leon Lason's family, and 1,200 other people. Those who inspire us choose the difficult, sacrificial, character-growing path, and by their example, they invite the rest of us to follow. So when it comes to unplanned pregnancies and abortion, the question to debate is not, do difficult life circumstances exist? Everyone agrees that they do. Nobody disagrees with that fact, which is why pro-lifers have been willing to make exceptions for difficult circumstances in bills for so long, something that I don't particularly agree with. The question is, what are we going to do about these difficult circumstances? How are we going to respond to these difficult circumstances? Now that's a question that a pregnant woman who's been abandoned by her boyfriend or her family has to ask. That's a question that a rape victim who discovers she's pregnant has to ask. That's a question that a pregnant teenager has to ask. That's a question medical professionals face with difficult ethical questions every single day have to ask. And that's the question that any citizen who lives in a society which permits abortion has to ask. What am I going to do about this? Human rights violations change in some ways, but in other ways, they always stay the same. Abortion is nothing like the Holocaust in many, many ways. The one excruciating moment of pain that we know a preborn child in the womb goes through in that moment when it's suctioned to pieces by an abortion is not 
comparable in any utilitarian way to the five long years of torture, starvation, and death that Jews were subjected to in concentration camps. The sheer emotional pain they felt as they were ripped from their families, forced from their homes, and had everything they knew and loved destroyed. Historically speaking, abortion and the Holocaust are nothing alike. But there is one common denominator, and that's that Jews were considered to be human beings, but the Nazi government declared that they were not persons. Preborn children, everybody recognizes that they are human beings, at least anybody who is scientifically literate in any way, recognizes that they are human beings. But the Canadian government doesn't recognize them as persons. Same thing as with African Americans during the time of slavery. They were considered to be human beings, but not persons. Same thing originally before the time of suffrage with women. Women were considered at one point to be human beings but not legal persons. Aboriginals were considered to be legal human beings but not full persons. Human rights violations and great injustices change in historical circumstance. They change in extent. They change in method. They change in psychology even. But they never change in one simple way. They don't change in that they're always denying human rights to human beings for completely arbitrary reasons. Oscar Schindler, when he saw what was happening to the Jews, realized that people just like him were being murdered for differences that should have had no impact on human rights, and he responded. He responded by doing everything he could to save those that he saw. Are you doing everything you can to save preborn children, even if you can't see them. That's the challenge I'd like to leave you with this week. It's just think about one thing you can do to help save preborn children in Canada from abortion. Think of one thing and then do it. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day and a great weekend.